Okay, we continue now with the discussion of the Chula Vedala Sutta. This is a dialogue between the Upasaka Visaka and the Arahant Bhikkhuni Dhammadina. And now last time we had come to the discussion on the Noble Eightfold Path, which begins in paragraph 9 of the Sutta. And we can see this question on the Noble Eightfold Path as following from the earlier discussion on Sakkaya, or personality, in the discussion on personality, Visaka had asked Dhammadina in paragraph 5, what is the way leading to the cessation of personality, of personal existence? And Dhammadina had answered by mentioning the Noble Eightfold Path with its eight factors. And now, at, at that point, the discussion on the Noble Eightfold Path did not continue. It was dropped because the discussion turned to the relationship between clinging and the five aggregates subject to clinging. But now, in paragraph 9, Visaka picks up again on the Noble Eightfold Path, and he asks, what is the Noble Eightfold Path? And Dhammadina replies by enumerating these eight factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. And as I explained last time, these eight steps or factors that make up the Noble Eightfold Path are actually eight chaitasikas, eight mental factors or constituents of mind. These mental factors function in different ways within the different groups of training factors mentioned by the Buddha. Just to review, to give some examples, the mental factor of Panya, wisdom, when it's a faculty, it's called Panyindriya, the faculty of wisdom. When it is a spiritual power, it's called Panyabala, the power of wisdom. But when Panya is related to the Noble Eightfold Path, brought into the Noble Eightfold Path, it's called right view or right understanding, Samaditi. Similarly, right intention is equivalent to vitaka, wholesome, directed thinking. The three moral factors of right speech, right action, right livelihood are equivalent to the three chaitasikas, three mental factors called the abstinences, the restraining factors. Right effort 
is equivalent to the mental factor virya, energy, vigor. Right mindfulness is actually equivalent to mindfulness or sati. And right concentration is equivalent to samadhi, samasamadhi. Okay, I'm explaining these eight path factors in terms of the chaitasikas or mental factors in order to lay the foundation for the next question to come up. This question arises in paragraph number 10. Visaka asks Damadina, Lady, is the Noble Eightfold Path conditioned or unconditioned? And Damadina replies, Friend Visaka, the Noble Eightfold Path is conditioned. This is just a very simple, very, very simple question and answer. Even if you're reading, you might just skip over it. <laughs> and yet, it's an extremely profound question and an extremely sharp and profound answer. And within this question and reply, I could say that almost the entire philosophy of the Buddha Dhamma is contained. The word conditioned in Pali is sankata, and the word unconditioned is asankata. The word sankata comes from the root kar, which means to make or to do, like in karoti, kama, karana, doing, making. Then the prefix sam means together. So the word sankata applies to anything which is produced from a number of conditions which together operate together in order to produce that thing, that phenomenon. So whatever arises through the cooperation of a multiplicity of conditions is called sankata. And the word asankata is just the negation of that. What is not produced by a group of conditions, what is not arisen, not born, not constructed. And in the teaching of the Buddha, there is only one Dhamma, one reality, which is a Sankata. What is that reality? Nibbana. And 
all the other dhammas or realities recognized in the Buddha's teaching are sankata, condition. And so according to the Buddha's teaching, all the phenomena of the five aggregates mentioned in the suttas, whether form, feeling, perception, mental formations or consciousness, are all conditioned, sankata. They arise from causes and conditions. According to the Abhidhamma method, where we have four ultimate realities, the first three, chitta or consciousness, chaitasikas, mental factors, and rupa, material phenomena, are conditioned, and the fourth reality, nibbana, is unconditioned. And now, Visaka might have been a little perplexed because Nibbana is unconditioned and the Noble Eightfold Path is the way that leads to Nibbana. And so somebody who reflects a little bit might come to the view that it's impossible for a person to realize the unconditioned by means of a conditioned path. So they might come to the conclusion either that the Noble Eightfold Path must be unconditioned or else Nibbana must be conditioned. Sometimes people say that the Noble Eightfold Path is the way to attain Nibbana. When you practice the path, you attain Nibbana. Therefore, Nibbana is produced by following the Noble Eightfold Path. And so Nibbana must be conditioned. That objection is raised in the questions of King Melinda, the Melinda Panna. And Bhante Nagasena gives a good reply to this by means of an example. He uses the example of a road that leads to a city. Now the city is existing at the end of the road and by means of that road one arrives at the city. But one does not say that the road is the cause for the arising of the city or that it's by traveling along this road that one produces or brings into existence the city. Of course in this example the city has been constructed and uh, has been produced so the analogy can't be pushed too far. But anyway, we can say that one uses the road to arrive at the city. And if one travels along that road, then one will come to the city. In the same way, Nibbana is unconditioned 
without any arising, any production, any conditioning. The Noble Eightfold Path is something conditioned. But by practicing that path, by traveling along that path, one arrives at the unconditioned, at Nibbana. And the fact that the Noble Eightfold Path is conditioned can be seen from the fact that even for the path to come into being there have to be causes and conditions that bring it into being. Each of these path factors has to be brought into being by practice and cultivation. And last time I made the distinction between the supramundane path, the truly Aryan Eightfold Path, and the mundane path, or the preliminary path. And so the supramundane Noble Path, this comes into being through the practice of the mundane path. And the mundane path comes into being first by learning about the path, by coming to understand it, then by cultivating through energetic effort each of these path factors. One begins with right understanding, right view, then through right view one forms an intention to practice, then one observes the principles of right speech, right action, and right livelihood. On that foundation, one makes effort, right effort. Then one cultivates mindfulness, and through that effort and mindfulness, one arrives at concentration. By practicing right concentration further, one develops insight, and then when all of these mundane factors are mature, they give rise to the super-mundane path, the Lokutara path. And so we can see that there are various causes and conditions for the arising of that Noble Eightfold Path. So for this reason, the Noble Eightfold Path is conditioned, not unconditioned. Okay, that is the question in paragraph number 10. <coughs> and now Visaka raises another question based on the Noble Eightfold Path. He says, are the three aggregates included by the Noble Eightfold Path or is the Noble Eightfold Path included by the three aggregates? And here we come across the word Kanda, which we've always met time and again when we speak about the five aggregates that make up the personality. 
but the word kanda is used in the text to mean another type of aggregate. These are the three groups of training factors, which we call sila, samadhi, and panya. Morality or virtue, concentration and wisdom. And now Visaka is asking, are these three aggregates to be found in the Noble Eightfold Path? Or is the Noble Eightfold Path to be classified into the three aggregates? Let me take a counter-example before we come to the explanation. Maybe some of you who have studied the Abhidhamma know about the 52 Chaitasikas. Okay, we have the 52 Chaitasikas and the five aggregates. Now we might ask, the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, and so on, are the 52 chaitasikas to be classified into the five aggregates, or are the five aggregates to be classified into the 52 chaitasikas? How would one answer that? So, no, just you have to answer. Are the 52 Chaitasikas to be classified into the five, to be incorporated into the five aggregates? Yeah. Or are the five aggregates to be incorporated into the 52 Chaitasikas? So, how would you answer? I would say that first because I cannot find Rupa in the Chaitasikas. Right, right. Or, or, yeah, Vinyana. Okay, because we have the five aggregates, form, feeling, perception, the mental formations, and consciousness. And we have 52 chaitasikas, and we take one chaitasika as feeling, that goes into the feeling aggregate. One chaitasika is perception, that goes into the perception aggregate. And 50 chaitasikas go into the formations aggregate. Then we have the five aggregates, though so the number is smaller, five, but they have a bigger range than the chaitasikas, even though the chaitasikas are 52. So all the chaitasikas fit into the five aggregates, but you can't fit all the five aggregates into the 52 chaitasikas. It's like maybe having this cup and <laughs> this 
what do they call it? a jug. I can put the cup into the jug, but I can't fit the jug into the cup. In the case of the three aggregates and the eightfold path, it's a little different than with the five aggregates, since here there's a perfect fit and there's nothing left over. But the three aggregates of morality, concentration and wisdom represent broader categories than the Eightfold Path. And so Visaka answers that the three aggregates are not included by the Noble Eightfold Path, but rather the Noble Eightfold Path is included by the three aggregates. And how is that so? Okay, first we have the aggregate of virtue, sila. That includes three factors of the Noble Eightfold Path. What are those three factors? What are the three factors? Right. And then the aggregate of concentration, that includes right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And right view and right intention, these are included in the aggregate of wisdom. Now here we have a certain, say, discrepancy or a certain puzzling point. When the Buddha enumerates the Noble Eightfold Path, he starts with right view and right intention and goes on to right concentration. But when the texts speak about the three aggregates, or the three groups of training, they begin with virtue as the foundation for samadhi and samadhi as the foundation for wisdom, panya. And so this might raise the question, why are right view and right intention placed first rather than last? Maybe how would you answer that? I think that would be so. I think in order for all the other factors to become truly factors of the Eightfold Path, even the mundane path, preliminary path, one has to have some right view or right understanding. Without right view, you can have good morality. Somebody without having this view of the Four Noble Truths, these three characteristics, just by nature or by training and education, might be a very virtuous, well-disciplined person. But that virtue and discipline 
even the rights, we could say, right speech, right action, right livelihood of the mundane type will not be functioning as factors in the path leading to the extinction of suffering. And again, somebody without right view and right intention might still be making some effort to purify the mind through some kind of meditative discipline outside the Buddha's teaching. And so they might be making some degree of right effort to remove defiled mental states and to achieve some mental purity or concentration. And so there will be wholesome effort, wholesome concentration, a certain degree of wholesome mindfulness, but it will not be the right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration that leads to the extinction of suffering. All of these other factors of the path only become factors of this noble Aryan Eightfold Path directed to Nibbana, the extinction of suffering when right view is present as the forerunner and you can say the guide of the other seven factors of the path. That's why the Buddha says in the suttas, he says, Samaditi Pupangama Vadami. I say that right view is the forerunner, the precursor of the entire Noble Eightfold Path. And yet, once one has that preliminary right view, then one has to enter the actual step-by-step -step training. And that means one has to develop sila, samadhi, and panya in sequence. Each one is the foundation for the other. And this step-by-step -step development, that is characteristic of what we call the preliminary path. The, in the commentaries they use the term Puba Bhaga Mugga. I will write that. The commentaries make this distinction between the Puba Bhaga Mugga which we can translate the preliminary path and the Lokutara Magga, which is the supramundane path. Now the preliminary path, that is the training or practice that one undertakes, you could say on an everyday basis, an ordinary basis. In this portion of the path, one has to begin, you begin with this preliminary right understanding, right view, and right intention. On that basis, one purifies one's virtue. 
that is, one observes right speech, right action, right livelihood. Based on that purified virtue, one develops a subject of meditation, concentration meditation, or insight meditation, until one gains some degree of samadhi, then based on that samadhi, one achieves actual insight, contemplation of the three characteristics, impermanence, suffering, non-self. That is, even that is the wisdom still of the preliminary portion. And with this wisdom in the preliminary portion, the insight into the true nature of phenomena gets deeper and deeper, sharper and sharper, until when all of the faculties are matured and in balance, then there comes a breakthrough to the supramundane path, to the Lokuttara mother. This is when the mind rises up above all the phenomena of the five aggregates and directly realizes Nibbana, the unconditioned element, the Asankatadatu. And when that breakthrough takes place, then all eight factors become elevated to this supramundane stature. They become, you can say that almost as though they are charged with the spiritual power of Nibbana. And they become supramundane themselves. And in that stage, all eight factors and the three groups are present simultaneously. One cannot say at this stage, first sila, then samadhi, then panya, but rather all eight are present realizing Nibbana and cutting off the fetters that bind one to samsara, the round of rebirth. So at that point, then all eight factors and all the three trainings are present simultaneously. That they're present at the same time. Well, actually, when one is in the stage of developing, say, Vipassana meditation, actually, then even then one would not say that the eight are present simultaneously, even though the person is observing 
right speech, right action, right livelihood. But this is according to the explanation of the Abhidhamma and commentaries. We would say that his speech, action, and livelihood have been purified earlier because he's not actually involved at that time in making a deliberate effort to restrain from wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood. At the mundane level, right speech, right action, right livelihood become operative only on the occasions when one is actually making the effort to restrain tendencies towards wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood. And at the mundane level, wrong speech, I'm sorry, right speech has the function of restraining wrong speech. Right action has the function of restraining wrong action. Right livelihood has the function of restraining wrong livelihood. And so, technically, from the standpoint of this Abhidhammic analysis, when somebody is engaged in the practice of insight meditation, one would say that right speech, right action, right livelihood are not present, even though conventionally we would say that he's virtuous or he has right speech, right action, right livelihood. What's present on that occasion in terms of the actual mental factors will be right view of insight whereby he's seeing impermanence, suffering, non-self. There will be right intention as that thought which is directing the mind towards contemplation. There will be right effort which is the energy of maintaining that practice, right mindfulness, which is the awareness of the object, and right concentration, which is focusing the mind on the object. So, in the experience of mundane wisdom, at that stage, actually five factors will be present. But when the mind reaches the super-mundane stage, then all eight factors come together. And now right speech, right action, right livelihood have a different function than they do in the mundane path. At this level, they have the function of cutting off even the tendencies towards wrong speech, wrong action, wrong livelihood. They're not just restraining the tendencies, but they are actually functioning to eradicate those tendencies. So that is why it's said that in the super-mundane stage, all eight come together, whereas that's not so in the earlier stage. When, when, um, when inside is when he's practicing the Yeah. The Lokutara path also is Sankata. It's conditioned. Yeah. The only thing that's unconditioned is Nibbana. Even though it's cutting off the Even though it's cutting off. But those states that make up the Lokutara path, they are mental factors, Chaitasikas. They've come into being and also they pass away. <laughs>
Okay. Is there any other question now on this part of the discussion? Is everything clear about this? So it's quite deep and difficult. If anybody wants me to review anything, then I will. Could you could you say something more on um, right intention? On the intention. Right, right intention. I noticed you, you translated it as direct. Yeah. Actually, in the suttas, when the Buddha analyzes right intention, he says right intention is the intention of renunciation or detachment, the intention of goodwill or non-ill will is actually abhyapada, and non-cruelty or harmlessness. And so this is, it's, you might call it the directed or purposeful act aspect of mental functioning. We would say right view is the cognitive or intellectual aspect that's concerned with understanding. And when there is this right understanding, then it affects the movement or direction of thought. That the thought is moving in the direction of renunciation, harmlessness, and non-cruelty. And that is in the mundane portion. But at the super-mundane level, then right intention becomes that directed thinking which directs the mind to Nibbana as its object. Any, any other questions? Okay, then we'll go on to the next, the next set of questions. Okay, now it seems Visaka is picking up on the aspect of concentration, the group of concentration. And he asks Dhammadina, there are four questions which go together. What is concentration? What is the basis of concentration? What is the equipment of concentration? What is the development of concentration? Okay, the in reply to this first question, what is concentration? Dhammadina replies that concentration is the unification of the mind. In Pali, this would be chitte kagata, or sometimes chittasse kagata. Now, according to the Abhidhamma method, one-pointedness of mind is a mental factor which is present in every state of consciousness. Every state of consciousness is unified on its object in that all the mental factors come together and they're all fixed on the same object. 
And so in a very broad way, one could say that in the Abhidhamic type of teaching that samadhi is present in every type of consciousness. But in the sutta, in the sutta teaching, samadhi signifies not this one-pointedness which is present in every type of consciousness. If that were the case, then there's no reason to develop samadhi. One could just enjoy oneself <laughs> and commit any type of action and one would have samadhi. But rather, the commentaries specify that in the sutta teaching, what is meant by one-pointedness of mind is wholesome one-pointedness of mind. Kusala chite kagata. And it is wholesome one-pointedness of mind which is developed to a degree of strength and stability so that the mind can remain fixed on its object without any distraction or any wavering, any fluctuation of the mind. And the suttas, and the suttas the Buddha mentions various types of samadhi. In the later literature, this samadhi has been analyzed into two main types. And these types are all that we have to be concerned with here. One is called samatha samadhi. This is concentration which is developed through the practice of samatha meditation in which one chooses a single simple object like a kusina or the breath or an image like skeleton and one fixes the mind on that object excluding all other objects until the mind remains just one-pointedly fixed on this single object and when that Samatha Samadhi is practiced, it leads to absorption, the jhanas. The other type of Samadhi is called Vipassana Samadhi. This is concentration which is developed through the practice of insight meditation. It is when one goes on contemplating changing objects with mindfulness again and again bringing the mind onto that object whatever object is appearing whether bodily phenomena mental phenomena even though the object is constantly changing from moment to moment but the mind remains fixed unshakably upon the changing stream of experience and that concentration that is called Vipassana Samadhi, the concentration of insight, or concentration that accompanies insight. Cultivation of one-pointedness of mind on the basis of the four foundations of mindfulness, 
and with the assistance or with the equipment of the four right efforts. Now, if you remember the explanation of the Samadhi Khanda, the concentration group, the other factor, if you remember now the constitution of the consti uh, concentration group, there were three factors, right mindfulness, the right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And now, the explanation here seems to be showing how right effort and right mindfulness function together to produce right concentration. The, say, the basis of practice, the actual technology, so to speak, is the cultivation of the four foundations of mindfulness. One takes one of these foundations as the basic object or basic means of practice, and then one attends mindfully to any other phenomena that arise in the course of contemplation. One notes the bodily phenomena, feelings, states of mind, and mental phenomena, the four foundations of mindfulness. And in order to cultivate the four foundations of mindfulness, one must do so with the four right efforts. One must make the effort to prevent unwholesome mental states that have not arisen from arising. One must make the effort to abandon any unwholesome states that have already arisen. One must make the effort to arouse wholesome mental states that have not yet arisen. And one must make the effort to sustain and to perfect any wholesome states that have already arisen. And so we have right mindfulness as the causal basis, but we can say the technology of practice, and right effort as the energy or equipment of practice working together and their guiding aim is to strengthen this faculty of one-pointedness of mind. And so when they are constantly repeated, developed, and cultivated, as explained in the sutta, then they issue in right concentration, or sama samadhi.
different. The commentary gives a useful illustration to show how these two factors of right effort and right mindfulness work together to support the attainment of right concentration or the attainment of one-pointedness of mind. They give the example of three schoolboys go to a park and to play and when they're playing in the park they see a tree with flowers, a flowering tree. And they decide that they want to pick these flowers but none of the boys is tall enough to reach up and pull the flowers. And so one boy comes, a strong boy, and he bends down and offers his back. The other boy who's going to pick the flowers is still hesitant to get up on the back of the second boy. But then the third boy comes along and he offers his shoulder as a support. And so the first boy gets onto the back of the second boy and braces himself against the shoulder of the third boy. And by doing so, he's able to reach up and pick the flowers. <laughs> okay, in this example, picking the flowers is achieving samasamadhi, or one-pointedness of mind. And the boy who's going to reach up and pick the flowers, that is the samadhi factor of the Eightfold Path. But samadhi, the samadhi factor by itself, cannot achieve concentration. Now the boy who comes over and lends his back, that is compared to right effort because he's strong and provides that vigorous support which samadhi needs. And then the boy who comes over and offers his shoulder as a support, that is compared to right mindfulness because it helps to balance the factor of concentration. And so when the three boys work together in this way, then they can collect the flowers and play their game with the flowers. And when the meditator cultivates right the four bases of or four foundations of mindfulness with the support, the equipment of right effort or the four right endeavors, then he can achieve one-pointedness or samasamadhi. Okay, and that is the explanation of this part of the sutta. Okay, are there any, um, if there are any questions, either on the earlier portions or on this part? Any questions? 
characters are what has collected these various questions together? Is there any theme that runs through, or is it just sort of a there's no single unifying theme, but it seems, I think I mentioned this in the first talk on the series, that this is according to the commentary, that in lay life, Visaka and Dhammadina were husband and wife, and then when they learned about the Dhamma, Visaka first, the man, became an anagami, a non-returner, then he told his wife about the Dhamma, and she went to become a nun, and then she achieved arhatship. Then Visaka, when he heard that Dhammadina had come back to Rajgir, he wanted to meet her to sort of test her level of understanding. And so he asked various very deep questions, which are sort of intended to probe to see whether she has really achieved arhatship. And so they're, I think, striking at that idea from you know, different, different standpoints rather than following in a strict logical sequence. Like in that case, we have an Arahant and somebody who hasn't achieved Arahantship yet. But there is a Sutta where three Arahants are set to discuss Dhamma like every fifth day, late into the night. So how do you see, what is the reason that they spend such a lot of time discussing Dhamma when they already mastered that and there is nobody else to listen as far as I understand? (laughs) I guess they find some kind of spiritual pleasure from it and maybe it will help even though as arahants they have fully penetrated the Dhamma but still there might be different aspects which will be clearer to one monk than another you know this would depend upon what there are additional faculties of knowledge that are auxiliary to the knowledge of arahantship (coughs) itself so, for example, this was Anuruta and two of his friends. It's possible that even though they all had achieved arhatship, but I would think Anuruta might have had a wider range of knowledge than the others. And so they might have asked, had discussions in order to bring out these different aspects. Or maybe it's even possible all three of them Maybe we can't say that one had a wider range of knowledge than the others, but maybe their understanding, their original understanding of the Dhamma came through different approaches, and so the discussion will you know, bring out these other aspects which will enrich their understanding, even though they don't have to do anything more to reach the final goal itself. But just as even the Buddha himself sometimes had discussions with Sariputta on points of Dhamma. <laughs> Not that the Buddha has anything to learn, but he brings out explanations from Sariputta just to have them maybe preserve for posterity. <laughs> okay, any any other questions? Some scholars they translate uh, 
I don't prefer it, but it's just that the problem is in finding, the root problem is finding a satisfactory explanation for the term sankara. <laughs> and so different scholars come up with different translations of that term, and it's really an extremely difficult term, almost impossible to translate adequately. The idea, the basic idea is just a sankata, what is not put together or actually the one word that I'm really inclining to like though I wouldn't insist on it is unconstructed it's something that's not built or put together through conditions why would you prefer that to I think uncompounded is contrasted with a compound and so the opposite of or, or a compound is something which is made up of other things and one, which one can analyze into its constituents whereas the basic idea of sankata is not something which is compounded in the sense that it can be analyzed into components but rather what is made by a multiplicity of factors working together The, the nuance of compounded. Constructed. Yeah. The, way, the reason we like constructed yeah. is it doesn't imply, imply something that can be analyzed, but rather something which is made by conditions. Though constructions for sankara, it leads to some strange renderings, which I don't. <laughs> okay, I think we will stop now. It's getting late. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.